You're listening to the podcast of Village Church in Burbank, California. To learn more about Village Church, visit our website at villagechurchburbank.org. We hope you enjoy today's message. What we've been doing so far in 2024 is, uh, bless you, I have been preaching uh, based on the gospel readings of the week that come to us out of the Revised Common Lectionary. Uh, every week, the Revised Common Lectionary provides a reading from one of the gospels. And it's a three-year cycle through the gospels. So these first two weeks, you know, I preached on hawks and doves. And then last week, underneath the fig tree. And both of those sermons were based on the passage of the week, the gospel reading of the week. We're going to do that again today, but... Um, you know, typically I try to do that about half the year. Usually it works out if you add them all up. About half the year I preach on the gospel reading of the week. That will all change for the next few months beginning next week. I've got a few different serieses that are coming up that I'm excited about. First of all, next week, not a series. I'm going to preach a sermon called Sacro Mysterion. It's a Latin phrase, Sacro Mysterion. And you'll find out what that's all about next week. I'm not going to give you any kind of promo. You've got to show up next week to find out. But I have a Lenten series that we're going to begin in a few weeks, and then I'll have a special Easter series that I'm working on right now. I just finished working on the Lenten series. I'm starting work this week on our Easter series. And then in the summer, i got a curveball for you. We're going to do something really radical. And I'm going to preach a series called The Gospel and Tom Petty. And I've been working on that. I'm excited about it. Each, each of those weeks, we're going to listen to a Tom Petty song, and then I'm going to connect it to a reading from the Gospels, and then I'm going to preach a sermon based on the passage, but it's going to be connected to Tom Petty as well. So I don't know. I think it's going to be fun. That's coming up in the summer, and I'm working on that as well. But tonight, uh, the title of my sermon as I'm preaching on the Gospel reading of the week, the title of the sermon is, Following Jesus Will Change You. Following Jesus will change you. And uh, so our reading, our passage for this week comes out of Mark 1, verses 14 through 20. So let's go ahead and begin reading this together. Now after John was arrested, Jesus came to Galilee proclaiming the good news of God, the gospel of God, saying, the time is fulfilled And the kingdom of God has come near. Repent and believe in the good news. As Jesus passed along the Sea of Galilee, he saw Simon and his brother Andrew casting a net into the sea, for they were fishers. And Jesus said to them, Follow me, and I will make you fishers of people. And immediately they left their nets and followed him. As he went a little farther, he saw James, son of Zebedee, and his brother John, who were in their boat mending the nets. Immediately he called them, and they left their father Zebedee in the boat with the hired men and followed him. All right. Too many, too many Christians in America, evangelical Christians in America, have come to see salvation as a status that you either have or you don't. 
You're either saved or you're not. It's either or, yes or no. It's very binary. It's a status. Salvation is something you have or you don't have. And that's how the vast majority of evangelicals have come to understand salvation. Are you saved or not? Do you have it or you don't? There's a little bit of truth to that, but not nearly enough. I think a much better emphasis for understanding the nature of salvation is to see it not so much as a status that you either have or don't have, but to see it as a journey that you as a person are on. After all, when Jesus says, follow me, isn't a journey implied? You see, because what's being saved is you. You the person. What needs to be saved is not so much your status or your afterlife destination so much. What needs to be saved is you. If you're following Jesus, you, the person, are being saved from the corruption of greed, pride, lust, self-indulgence, self-centeredness, envy, resentment, bitterness, rampant materialism, unbridled ambition, and then a thousand other things. But you, the person, are being saved. And that's a journey that's going to last the rest of your life. That's an expedition. That's going to last until you take your last breath if you're following Jesus. You never arrive. But it is a journey. It's a path. It's a life that you live. It's a path that you walk. And I'm going to tell you this. If you will walk that path with Jesus, if you will walk the path of salvation, where more and more Jesus is saving you from the corruption of the powers of lust and greed and pride and all of those things, if you'll walk that path, your status, your afterlife destination will work itself out. But don't worry about any of that. What really matters that is that you as a person are being saved. Does that make sense? I mean, if you've been here to Village for a very long time, this shouldn't be new to you. But if you just walked in off the street, this is going to be very new to you because it's not what you hear all the time. Now, if you're following Jesus, what this means is that if you are actively following Jesus, you're on that path, it means that you are going to be going through all kinds of changes along the way. All kinds of changes. You'll never stop changing. You'll never stop changing if you're following Jesus in all kinds of ways. Um, I've been following Jesus now, sometimes well, sometimes not so well, most of the time not so well. But I've been on the journey with Jesus since as far back as I can remember. I was raised in church. I had a pivotal moment when I was 13. I encountered Jesus for the first time. And I'll never forget that night. I've talked about it in the past. But I've been on this journey virtually almost my entire life in one way or another. And people who have known me for a long time, sometimes every so, so often somebody will come to me and they'll say, Ryan, you have changed. Like, even over the last 10, 15 years, they'll say, you've changed. Your preaching has changed. The things that you emphasize has changed. The content of your preaching and your sermons has changed. You're a different person. So you've changed, Ryan. And I'll say, I had to because I wasn't enough like Jesus when I was 15, 20, 25, 30, and so on. How about you? I mean... Even just over the last 10, 15 years, my, my theology has dramatically changed. The way I understand God and God's nature has changed. The way that I approach the Holy Scriptures has changed. 
The way, the way that I think about what a church is to be and what a pastor is to be, that's changed profoundly. My end times theology has changed dramatically. My understanding of what the gospel is, I've had to unlearn a lot of stuff so I could relearn it in what I believe is a healthier, more accurate way. But there's been a lot of change in Ryan Post over the years. And there had to be because I wasn't enough like Jesus. The only unchangeable one is Jesus himself. Jesus is the center of the universe around which everything else is to revolve. So tonight I want to talk about changes. And we're going to do this by looking at Simon Peter. He's probably my favorite person besides Jesus to study in the Bible. I just relate to Simon Peter so much. And we're going to do this here at the beginning. I'm going to I'm going to draw from five readings from the New Testament about Peter. Five short readings, and they come from five different pivotal moments in Simon Peter's life. So five different readings. There's going to be one from Mark, one from Luke, one from John, and then two from the book of Acts. The easiest thing for you to do is follow along the screen. All right, if you're one of those people that you got to know the references, just watch the stream tomorrow or listen to the podcast this week it'll all be there i promise you but just enter into these five readings as we look at them and we're going to start by looking at the beginning of of peter's first encounter with jesus that actually came from our opening text today uh, let's look at mark 1 16 and 17 as jesus passed along the sea of galilee he saw simon and his brother andrew casting a net into the sea for they were fishers. And Jesus said to them, follow me and I will make you fishers of people. Three years later, Luke 22, verse 54. Then they seized Jesus and led him away, bringing him into the high priest's house. But Peter was following at a distance. Remember that early call. He says, follow me. And now Luke's saying, Peter was following at a distance. A few weeks later, John 21, verses 18 and 19. Very truly, Jesus says, very truly, I tell you, Peter, when you were younger, you used to fasten your own belt and to go wherever you wished. But when you grow old, you will stretch out your hands and someone else will fasten a belt around you and take you where you do not wish to go. And John writes, he said this to indicate the kind of death by which Peter would glorify God. After this, he said to him, follow me. Ten years later, Acts 10, 34. Then Peter began to speak to them. I truly understand, or it can be translated, I now understand. Now I get it. Now I know that God shows no partiality. But in every people, anyone who fears him and practices righteousness is acceptable to him. Finally, a few weeks later, Acts 11, verses 2-4. through So when Peter went up to Jerusalem, the circumcised believers criticized him, saying, why did you go to uncircumcised men and eat with them? Then Peter began to explain it to them step by step. All right. Now let's go back to the beginning. And Jesus, when he calls Peter, he says, follow me and I will make you. That's very interesting language right there. You might expect that Jesus would say it this way, follow me and I will take you. Follow me and I'm going to take you somewhere. That's typically how we as evangelicals 
understand salvation. Follow Jesus, he's going to take you to heaven. Follow Jesus and he'll take you to happiness or peace or success or whatever might be in your mind. But we see uh, the destination in mind. Follow, follow me and I will take you. But it's not follow me and I will take you. It's follow me and I will make you. Because watch this. Salvation is not about getting somewhere. It's about becoming someone. See, that's the paradigm shift I'm asking you to make if you haven't already. Salvation is not about getting somewhere. It's about becoming someone. And we're walking with Jesus. And as we stay on that journey, we're transformed by the journey to become more like Jesus. And in becoming more like Jesus along the journey, which is the whole point of it all, we become more uniquely ourselves, our true selves, the, tr the self that we're intended to become. The more we become like Jesus, the more truly, genuinely, one of a kind you become. I'll say it this way. As we're all following Jesus, we don't just sort of melt into this bland sameness. But as we follow Jesus, we become wonderfully, beautifully unique. See, the devil is the one who mass produces people. If you kind of imagine in your mind a, a factory assembly line with conveyor belts, the devil is the mass industrialist who's stamping people, trying to make them all alike. But Jesus is not a mass industrialist churning out Christians on factory assembly lines called churches. Jesus is an artisan who handcrafts them one at a time. So Jesus called Simon, not Peter yet, Simon. Simon Barjona. Simon, son of Jonah. And Simon, son of Jonah, he doesn't know that he's actually supposed to become Peter. He doesn't even have a clue about that. If you were to come up to him and say, what's your name? He would say, my name is Simon. And you and you'd say, oh, I know who you are. You're Peter. He would say, what? What are you talking about? And you say, well, listen, man, I, like, I know you're Simon. You're going to become Peter, and that's actually what's going to make you famous. You're going to become someone else. You're going to become a guy named Peter. And, and listen, 2,000 years from now, this will blow your mind, there's going to be St. Peter's everything. Colleges, hospitals, St. Petersburg, Russia, and all of that. He's going to change the world. But Simon's got to go on a journey. He's on the journey to become Peter, which is actually who he really is. He just doesn't know it yet. So Simon, on the journey to become Peter, follows Jesus into the great unknown. And from that point forward, Simon's entire life is like a Knott's Berry Farm roller coaster. It's up and down, up and down. Dramatic ups and downs. I think about maybe what encapsulates Peter for us is, you remember like, in Capernaum, or not Capernaum, in uh, Caesarea Philippi, Peter makes that big confession we talked about last week. You're the Christ, the Son of the living God. And, and you remember Jesus says, Blessed are you, Simon, son of Jonah, for flesh and blood has not revealed this to you, but you receive this from my Father in heaven. And it's like this huge high for Peter. And two verses later, Get behind me, Satan. You're a stumbling block to me. And he crashes down. That's Peter's life, man. It's up and down, up and down. I think about when Jesus told him, uh, Simon, Simon, Satan has asked to sift you as wheat. 
You know, I used to not know anything about the sifting of wheat. You know, it used to be that as a modern person, all I knew about wheat is you go to the store and buy some bread and it's in a plastic bag. But I, then I started doing a little bit of international travel and, and going some of the places, developing countries or, or third world countries, what we sometimes call them. And I have now, I can tell you, I have now seen the sifting of wheat, the way that it's been done for thousands of years. Um, and the way it would work is, is usually it would have, you know, it's best to use two people. And so you got one person on either end and you're holding a blanket and you put everything into the center of the blanket. And they like to do this on a windy day outside. What you do is you'll, you'll, toss, it every, you'll toss it all up into the air. And, and so all of the flaky stuff, all of the chaff that's useless, the wind just carries it away. But the kernels of wheat, because it has weight, because it has substance, it returns back to the blanket. So you just keep going up and down, up and down, up and down. So the more and more the chaff, the flaky stuff is being blown out of it, and the, the stuff that you want, the stuff that got substance, it's, it's, it remains in the blanket. And that's how they sift wheat. I think that's a perfect visual of what Peter's life is like from beginning to end. His entire journey with Jesus is up and down, up and down, often up and down. Why? Because Peter's got a lot of flaky stuff that's got to get blown out of his life. He's got a lot of chaff that's got to get blown out. But he's not all flaky stuff. There's some substance to this man. He just has to be sifted, you see. So at the end of three years, we have this moment where Jesus is arrested in the Garden of Gethsemane and he's brought to the home of Caiaphas, the Jewish high priest. And they're leading him up uh, to Caiaphas's house. And Luke tells us very poignantly, he says, Peter was following at a distance. I think that's interesting. He's following at a distance. I, um, I've heard many sermons on this particular story. And a lot of times people get very critical of Peter and they say he shouldn't have been following at a distance. He should have been right up there with Jesus. He should have been right by Jesus' side. Well, I suppose so. But at least Peter's still following Jesus. All of the other disciples, except for him and John, had scattered and fled and deserted. So I think at least he deserves that credit. It's not about following Jesus perfectly. Nobody does that. It's about staying on the journey. And that's what Peter does. He never deviates. But then as Jesus is inside Caiaphas' house, he's on trial, he's being brought before the high priest, and it's this long, drawn-out ordeal. And Peter remains in the courtyard of Caiaphas' house with, I imagine, a, a decent-sized crowd of people. And there's a fire. Uh, the Gospel writers tell us somebody had made a fire because it's, it's Passover season, usually like March or April, and so it's kind of cool in the air. So they build a fire, and, and Peter's there waiting. He's distraught. Everything is turmoil and chaos internally for him. And while he's sitting there, three different people on three different occasions recognize him and say, I know who you are. You're with him. You're one of his associates. You're, you're like his right-hand man. You're his disciple. I can even hear when you speak, you've got a Galilean accent. And, and Peter, out of fear, out of self-preservation, out of deep insecurity and lack of courage and lack of understanding, 
he, he denies it three times. Each time somebody comes, Peter says, I don't know him. I don't know him. I swear I don't know him. Cock-a-doodle-doo. The rooster crows. And Peter realizes what he's done. He's disassociated himself publicly from Jesus. And he's crushed and he weeps. And then Jesus is crucified. But then on the third day, Jesus is raised from the dead. Peter sees Jesus risen from the dead. He knows Jesus is risen from the dead. What he doesn't know now is where he stands with Jesus. A little bit later, the risen Christ encounters the disciples and tells them, I want you to go up to Galilee, go back up to Galilee and wait there for me. And so they're all up there and I don't know how long they were waiting. Certainly a few days. And at some point, Peter says, I'm going fishing. Now, when Peter says, I'm going fishing, he's not talking about recreational fishing. Like, let's go past the time and catch some perch or something. He's talking about vocational fishing. Peter's basically saying, man, I'm pretty sure this whole apostleship thing is out of the window for me. Thrice denier and all. So I might as well go back to what I know and make a living fishing. And six of the other disciples, remember most of them were fishermen, they join him. And so they're up there, they're fishing one of those nights. They've been fishing all night long. They haven't caught anything. And now it's morning and, the, and dawn begins to break. And they notice uh, on the distant misty shore of Galilee, like 100 yards away, there's a stranger. And uh, the stranger calls out to him and says, hey, you guys catch anything? And they're like, uh, no, funny thing is, not a single thing. Not a single fish. And the guy on the shore says, um, why don't you cast your net on the other side of the boat? Then you'll catch something. Which seemed like a bizarre word of advice. But they did. And they did catch fish. A bunch of them. And John says, it's the Lord. And Peter, without a second thought, dives into the sea, swims to shore, and he has breakfast with Jesus. But it was uncomfortable. It was awkward. The fish and the bread that he ate that morning, I'm sure it went down pretty hard for Peter. And Jesus just so happened to build a fire, campfire, there on the shore. Just like there was a fire that night at Caiaphas' house a few weeks before. He kind of recreates the scene. And Jesus breaks the tension and he says, uh, Simon, notice the name he calls him, Simon, Simon, son of Jonah. Do you love me? Are you, do you love me more than these? He says. Now when he says that, he, he's not saying, Simon, do you love me more than you love Andrew and James and John and the others? What he's saying is, do you still claim to love me more than these do? Because you remember, on the night Jesus was arrested, just before, they're in the upper room having what we call the Last Supper, and Jesus tells all of the disciples, all of you are going to desert me. And Peter says, not me. All these jokers, they'll probably desert you, but not me. I'm your closest friend. I love you more than these guys. But you see, that was flaky stuff. That had to be blown out of his life. G Peter, think about this. Peter had to go through that failure. That failure was for his own good. That's why Jesus tells him in advance, it's going to happen. He says, I want you to know before you do it that I know you're going to do it, and yet I'm still here sharing a meal with you. I'm still at your table. Simon, son of Jonah, 
Do you love me more than these? And Peter says, you're my friend. It's the Greek word phileo. He's talking about friendship. You're my friend. Jesus says, feed my lambs. A little bit of time passes. The second time, Jesus says, Simon, Simon, son of Jonah, do you love me? Phileo, do you love me? Peter says, you're my friend. And then a third time, Simon, son of Jonah, am I your friend? Are you, are you my friend? And Peter says, Lord, you know everything. You know that I'm your friend. And Jesus says, yeah, I know. I know. Now feed my sheep and follow me. He reissues the call. He reaffirms the call. I'm so glad that even in the midst of the worst failure of our life, Jesus reaffirms the call. He doesn't give up on us. He confirms it once again to Peter. He, the, very, the very beginning of Peter's journey is follow me. And after Peter's completely blown it, Jesus says, once again, follow me. But then he looks at Peter and he, he says, when you were younger, you used to dress yourself and go wherever you wanted to go. Strong-willed man that you are. But he says, there's coming a day. And he speaks very cryptically here, but Peter understands, and John who's overhearing understands. There's going to come a day, you're going to stretch out your arms. And they're going to take you where you don't want to go. And John gives us this parenthetical remark. He says he said this to indicate the way in which Peter would die and glorify the Lord by crucifixion. But nevertheless, the call remains the same. Peter, just keep following me. Now finally, 10 years later, Peter is staying at the home of a guy named Simon the Tanner in the seaside town of Joppa on the Mediterranean. By the way, we were in Joppa about a year ago. Those of you that were in Israel, we went to Joppa, some of us. And there's actually a house there that's spoken of as the house of Simon the Tanner. I'm not really sure, though, because written above the doorframe, it looks like it's written in Sharpie, house of Simon the Tanner. Like, I don't know if this is legit. <laughs> but anyway... It's a cool place but Peter is there this is 10 years after Jesus's ascension 10 years later and, and Simon Peter's at the home of Simon the Tanner there in Joppa it's about the middle of the day it's noon and it's time for the noonday prayers you know because the Jewish people and the early Christians had set times for prayer and so Peter goes up onto the rooftop, which would have been flat. He goes up on the rooftop of Simon's house and he begins to pray the prayers. He prays the noonday prayers. And somebody, I'm sure, down there is preparing lunch. They're preparing a meal and Peter can smell the smoke from the meal. He can feel his hunger. But he's praying his prayers. And then here's what it says in the book of Acts. I'm about to blow somebody's mind. It says he fell into a trance. There's a word that uh, we don't say a whole lot in evangelical churches. He fell into a trance. It's right there in the book of Acts. It's the Greek word ekstasis. We'll talk about it sometime. He slips into a trance. And then he has a vision. And in this vision, a, a great sheet is lowered from the heavens. And inside the sheet is a bunch of animals that for a Jewish person would have been considered unclean to eat. So I'm thinking like shellfish, Lobster, crabs, shrimp, crawfish, all the stuff that I miss. Maybe something even more exotic, maybe a rabbit. You know, all kinds of 
unclean animals. And in this vision, uh, Peter hears the voice from the heavens that says, rise, Peter, kill and eat. And Peter's like, ah, you're not going to trick me that easy. I know what this is. This is a test. You're testing my commitment to the Jewish diet. And I don't eat that kind of stuff. Those, that's, that's, that's Gentile food right there. I don't mix with anything Gentile. So uh, nothing like that's going to touch my lips, Lord. So nice try, but I'm not going to give in to this test. And the voice, you know, Peter expects the voice is going to say, well done, Peter, you have passed the test. Instead, the voice says, what I've called clean, you shall no longer call unclean. And it happens three times as if to drive home the point. And Peter's like blown away, trying to ponder what does this mean? And as Peter's trying to sit there and meditate on what's just happened to him, there's a knock at the door. And at the door are three Gentiles who say, we have just been sent from our master, Cornelius, who's a commander of the Roman military from up there in Caesarea. And he's just had a really strange experience in prayer involving an angel who has told him to send word down to Joppa and find a guy named Simon Peter who can come to his house and explain something important about a guy named Jesus of Nazareth. Well, you understand, ordinarily, this is something Peter would never have done. You don't mix with Gentiles. You certainly don't share a meal with Gentiles. You don't walk into a Gentile's house. And as far as Peter's concerned, Jesus is the Jewish Messiah for the Jewish people. And the kingdom of God is God's reign among Jews. And if you were to ask Peter, what about Gentiles? If they want to be saved, if they want to be part of this, what do they got to do? And Peter would tell you, let them become Jews. Let them get circumcised. Let them begin to follow the Jewish kosher laws. Let them follow the Torah. Then they can have access to the Jewish Messiah. And by the way, that's not just Peter. That's every Christian at this time. Everyone puts Jews on a higher status than Gentiles. And if a Gentile wants to be part of God's kingdom, they've got to go through the, the conversion process into Judaism. Then they can become a Christian. That's the way that was working. And nobody thought otherwise. But Peter's like, man, I just had this weird experience in prayer. I think I might have to change my thoughts on this. I think I might have to adjust my theology. I might have to change my opinions here. And Peter does something that would have been inconceivable before this vision, and he goes. He goes with this delegation of Gentiles. They make the little journey to Caesarea Maritima. And Peter does something he's never done in his life. He steps over the threshold into a Gentile home. You understand what a Gentile is? These are non-Jews. And to be a non-Jew at that time in world history was to be a pagan. These are pagans. They worship false gods. They worship idols. They eat all kinds of unclean things. And Peter walks into this house. He doesn't even know how to justify it theologically. He just walks into his house. And he's, he, he, this, here's how Peter starts off. He says, I just want everybody here to know I've never done this before. Like, I've never stepped into a Gentile's house before. And the reason why is because my religion forbids it. But now I think I'm going to have to change my position on this. I'm going to have to change my thinking on this. And he says, now I know, now I understand that God shows no partiality. But in every nation... Those who fear him and do what is right are acceptable to God. 
And he begins to go into telling the story about Jesus of Nazareth, the Messiah of Israel, for the entire world. And he talks about the kingdom of God and what it means to be part of the kingdom of God. And he explains it to these Gentiles, as Gentiles. And at some point, they begin to believe and repent. And Peter takes them and he baptizes them, formally inducting them into the Jewish body of Messiah as Gentiles. Like there's no discussion of, okay, now I need you to get circumcised and follow the Torah and follow the Jewish dietary laws. There's nothing like that. He just takes these pork chop eating Gentiles and baptizes them on the spot into the Jewish body of Messiah as Gentiles. These are heavy-duty changes. And if you don't get it, I guarantee you there were some folks in Jerusalem who got it. Because by the time Peter has a chance to return to Jerusalem, there's already a faction of angry church leaders waiting for him. And these angry church leaders, this faction, first of all, they're known as the circumcision party. Ain't no party like a circumcision party, right? But these are, these are men who were Pharisees, but they ended up becoming Christians. They, they believe that Jesus is the crucified and resurrected, ascended Lord of all now. So they become believers, and yet they're still believing what Peter himself, up until very recently, also believed. And that is, if you're going to be saved, if you're going to be part of the body of Messiah, for crying out loud, you've got to be Jewish. Everybody knows that. And so they're waiting for Peter. And when Peter arrives, they demand an explanation. What are you doing, Peter? We heard about what you did in Caesarea. You walked into a Gentile's house and ate a meal with them and baptized them as Gentiles? Elevating Gentiles and Jews to the same level with equal access to God's Messiah? What the heck is going on here? No conversion process? What are you doing, sir? And Peter says, I know, I understand, I would agree. But you see, I had this experience. And he begins to explain to them step by step, it says. He tells them, man, I was on the rooftop of this guy's house in Joppa. I, had a, I was praying my prayers, fell into a trance, got a vision. A bunch of animals and a sheet that are unclean. Rise, Peter, kill and eat. Not so, Lord, nothing unclean has ever touched my lips. What I've called clean, you shall no longer call unclean. Happened three times, and there was a knock. There's these guys inviting me, said an angel, asked them to send for me. I went, and I walked into Cornelius' house, and I shared the gospel of the kingdom of God, and Jesus is God's Messiah and the Lord of heaven and earth. And I began to tell them all that. And he's like, and then guess what happened? The Holy Spirit fell on those Gentiles the same way the Holy Spirit fell on us 10 years ago on the day of Pentecost. So, you know, seems it didn't make much difference to God. So Peter's like, what am I supposed to do about it? Now let me ask you a question. We're winding down now. Let me ask you a question. Would it have been better if Peter had been able to say something like this? You know what? I met Jesus 13 years ago and I haven't changed one thing I believe about anything since. Bless God. Would that have been better? Of course not. You see, Peter changed his theology about you, Mr. and Mrs. Gentile. 
Peter changed his position on you. He changed his opinion about you and me. And he said, you know what? They're not so bad. They can come just as they are into this thing. They don't need to become like us culturally and follow our dietary laws. That's fine for us. I'm all for it, he would say. I'm good with that, but that's because we're Jews. They're not. They're Gentiles. And he says, now I know. Now I understand that God wasn't like what I thought he was. Now I know that God shows no partiality. But in every nation, those who fear God and do what is right are acceptable to him. And God accepts Gentiles as Gentiles into his kingdom. I know it sounds crazy, but he does. So I've just changed my thinking on this. And I'm going to tell you, man, it took 13 years of Peter following Jesus on the journey to arrive at this conclusion that Gentiles are welcome into God's kingdom as they are. 13 years. And I'd bet you good money there were tons of Peter's fellow Christians who would have been absolutely convinced that Peter is backslidden, that Peter's compromised. He is lowering the bar of what it means to be the people of God. That Peter, apparently Peter doesn't believe in preaching on sin anymore. Apparently Peter believes you can eat shrimp and still be saved. <laughs> liberal. That liberal guy. I mean, if we just let these people in, if we let in these uncircumcised Gentiles who don't give a hoot about the Torah, who don't give a hoot about keeping kosher laws, we let them in as they are, we're going to be pulling down the wrath of God upon us. That's what they said. I know because I've met these people. And Paul met them too, called them dogs. He said, beware of those dogs, they'll bite you. Well, in fact... The understanding of what it means to be God's people was changing. It was changing to make room for people like you and me. The kingdom of God was opening up to receive the whole world. And it's possible now that the whole world can be received into the kingdom of God because Peter changed and was willing to face the music. And so here you and I are fine Christian people that we are who are certain of so much. We're so certain of all of our positions and our opinions and all of that kind of thing. But if we're not careful, we can become closed and shut off and hostile towards others, towards outsiders. And that's how we're born. That's how we're raised. That's how we're scripted in us versus them hostility. But that happens before we embrace the changes brought about because we stay on the journey with Jesus who opens our hearts. Thank you for listening to today's message. To learn more about Village Church, visit our website at villagechurchburbank.org.